Welcome to Strong Not Starving. My name is Marcus Kane, and if you want to beat binge eating and create a rewarding dynamic with food, exercise, and body image, you're in the right place. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. But that is not coming from a place of judgment from me. It's rather a place of experience, having yeah. been one of those men who had never tapped into my emotions or processed feelings and thought that that was lame or weak or just thought I didn't have emotions until my life was totally broken and I was harming those around me. That was today's amazing guest, Joe Spector. Now, Joe is a retired firefighter who runs mental health training for first responders and holy shit, do we have a lot to learn from this guy. I'm so grateful for this conversation with Joe because when we're not able to be fully present with the full scope of human emotion, when we try to push feelings down for too long, when we expect ourselves not to be human and just kind of weather blow after blow without support, sooner or later, cracks start to show. Now, once upon a time for me and for the people who I work with now, those cracks start to show in our relationships with food, exercise, and body image. Our relationship with ourselves in those particular areas often start becoming like the whipping boy for other problems, other feelings, other experiences that aren't being fully processed or dealt with and just kind of pushed down. Now, maybe when things start to boil over in your life or when you try to be the hero for a bit too long, you might notice a bit of that too. This is one of those conversations that hit me on a really personal level and I... <laughs> I tried, I tried really hard not to choke up at the end, but I did and you'll hear it. But we're in the right conversation for it because Joe would say that's totally cool. We're going to talk about how being able to be with the full spectrum of human emotion is actually a sign of strength. And a super quick note, an application for my one-to-one -one coaching and my new group coaching programs is in the episode description. So if you're feeling the pressure with diet, exercise, and body image, if what you're currently doing feels like a lot of work just to tread water without getting anywhere, come and talk to me. Now, this episode does contain a detailed account of a suicide attempt as well as something that I've never shared publicly before about my own history, something that was part of the years that I spent buried in an eating disorder. So before you jump in, be sure to decide whether or not you're in a good place to listen to this subject matter. Without further delay, here's Joe Spector. Joe, thanks for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, man. And, and you know, thanks for the time that you've allocated for this today, dude. You're so welcome. I really appreciate you having me here and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you, man. Look, one of your pieces of content has just given me endless hours of laughter and it's something about like men not being willing to experience emotion or trying, you know, going to extraordinary lengths just to not feel emotion and really like I kind of suspect that there is no force in the known universe greater than the will of a man who is determined not to feel things. And it's, it's so like, true. <laughs> I'd love to know, like, because of that piece of content that you put out there on that, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Some of your feelings surrounding that situation, what you've seen, maybe some of your own experiences. Could you expand on, on that post for us? Of course. Well, that post is really, I'm glad that that one resonated because of all the things I talk on and teach on and have experienced that's the most where my passion lies the most. And what you just said is true, but that is not coming from a place of judgment from me. It's rather a place of experience, having yeah. been one of those men 
who had never tapped into my emotions or process feelings and thought that that was lame or weak or just thought I didn't have emotions until my life was totally broken and I was harming those around me. And I did this whole deep dive healing journey after uh, trigger warning and near miss with almost ending my life. And it really got bad before it got good. And at no fault of mine or most men, we have um, very few of us were nurtured and taught how to maintain our edge and maintain our masculinity and tap into our humanity and our wholeness and our emotions and how to process those things and balance all that out and do it in a healthy way. So none of us were taught growing up. And we have this culture that is like split where it's like half the world is like, yes, we need this. And the other half of the world is like, that's weak. And it's very, it's a, it's a delicate road to balance for most of us. And that's, that's kind of why I get onto Instagram now is I'm like, I'm a fireman. I kick indoors to burning buildings. I have tattoos. I'm a tough dude. And I cry and I engage with my children with their emotions. And I love listening empathetically. And like, it's, it's, it's all of the above and it's okay. Not only is it okay, it's imperative to do all the above because it's, it's so harmful to repress your emotions. Like, uh, I love the adage of like, when you hold on to resentment or anger, you're holding on to hot coals and it's like burning yourself. And if, and I, I, I would add to that same goes for trauma and fear and anxiety. And when you hold on to that, it's not just like holding on to hot coals. I think it's a Buddhist adage, but like, I also think it's like holding on to those hot coals or throwing them at your loved ones and other people when you hold on and you don't process that stuff, you're, you're damaging and burning yourself and your loved ones. And the reality is, is you deserve to express yourself and to feel and to be seen and to nurture yourself. And we probably, you deserve to be nurtured as a kid and maybe you didn't get that, but we, we can change that now moving forward. But subconsciously, boy, we sure tried to avoid it and we think it's weak and we numb it and no, no judgment. I did all of that, but it's, it's so damaging and you only live once and uh, you know, it's, it's life is very short and almost everybody on their deathbed regrets not doing healing work, seeking greater connection, loving more, uh, engaging in their passion, taking the mask off and being themselves. These are common threads. So I think that, uh, we change the world by healing ourselves and allowing ourselves to process our emotions. But every time I talk to dudes about it, I often get that Will Ferrell response. That's why it resonated so much. Like what well, you, you articulated it much more beautifully, but it is one of the most powerful forces in the world. A man who doesn't want to get near his emotions because they're like fire, but the only way out is through, you got to walk through that fire, you know, and it's, it's not weak. It's brave. I've done the brave hero stuff at work and I've done the the emotional opening up it, it takes much more bravery to do this stuff i promise you that man and you mentioned in there about keeping your edge like there's this thing with men about you know we want to keep our edge and you know it's crazy that you use that word because one of my clients uh you know shout out to him he's an absolute hero he's a paramedic and so you know he's first responder. I know you've got a lot of experience working with first responders. And we literally had this conversation uh, very recently when we were talking about, okay, we're feeling more, we're in touch with more, more self-aware. Like, how do we do that while still keeping our quote edge? What are your thoughts on that? How do we, how do we have the best of both worlds? How do we do the the hero shit at work that you're talking about. Like, how do we be that guy at work and then come home and feel the feelings and be soft and empathetic 
with the people we love? How do we be both people? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. It has a lot to do with uh, how we define edge and masculinity and bravery. And we need to flip the script and realize that I'm not big into like, be a man, but for this conversation, we're talking about men. So in specific, if you're going to define what does a man look like, a man doesn't look like being afraid to tap into his feelings so he harms his loved ones and makes his family feel uncomfortable. A man is willing to do challenging things and difficult things and adapt and overcome and face adversity. And so not being comfortable opening up to the softer side of life, such as empathy, tears, all of those things, it, it, I'm not assigning a label here, but it is, it is a form of fear or weakness. And if you're a man and you're edgy, you're, you're not afraid. So a lot of times I tell the guys at work, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid to cry? Are you afraid? You know, I do that as a joke <laughs> because we can rib each other like that. I, it's not normally how you help people, but For when sure, the guys yeah. are telling me I'm a wuss, I'm like, well, are you scared to go to therapy? Are you, what are you scared of, bro? You yeah. know, like uh, how tough are you? Are you tough enough to face the scariest demon of all, which is your feelings and your softness and your heart? I promise you, you'll feel better afterwards and your family will thank you. And it's not it, a sign of growth and maturity as a, a man or a woman or adult, anybody is shifting from a black and white thinking. It's not either or, it's yes and. So it's not I'm either a rugged man who's tough at work or I cry and I tell my kids about my feeling about their feelings and I'm I'm open to emotions it's yes and I'm a I'm a bad mother effer and I'm been I've tried and tested on the streets growing up and on the streets in my career field and I cry and I like romantic movies and I love that my daughter and I exchange hokey things on Instagram like it's both you can and there's plenty of examples of amazing warriors who are soft and have huge hearts it's just the other element I would say is I don't like saying be man enough, but for the context of this, be man enough or be edgy enough to not let other people define for you what a man is, because that is a bunch of unhealed, wounded society, cultural constraints that are making you, giving you the permission or not to tap into your emotions. Nah, man, you get to decide, own that, empower yourself. If you really don't want to, fine. Some of my friends are open to it, but they go to therapy and they're like, I don't really have any trauma. I don't cry. That's fine. But like, you get to choose. Don't do it because somebody else is telling you how you need to be. F that. That's that's not edgy to me. That's like conforming, you know? Yeah. Well, because it's like you said, it's so much harder to feel something than it is to, to do the shot of vodka, to, you know, bury yourself in work, to distract, to numb, to dissociate so much harder to actually, I mean, in the short term, at least, like obviously using the distractions and everything, like you said, the hot coals, long term, those fuckers burn. And you can swear on this podcast, by the way. Yes. So okay, good. I've been holding it in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you just let it, let it out. Let it out, bro. Okay, it's really that's cool. how I roll. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Like it's holding on to that shit. Long term, it's much harder, but in the short term feels so much harder just to live without a distraction, to live without something to kind of numb that. But truly, whenever I've ever taken an action with the intention of trying to numb an emotional experience, every single time without fail provided a very short window of relief, followed by the situation being 
exponentially worse down the road every yeah, time always a low following the high and there's always a cost to that particular distraction or numbing every time 100% of the time and that's why it's so important to learn how to sit in stillness and mindfulness and feel those feelings because i think a lot of um one of the teachers in my yoga studio he often says like the body is healthy when it's free from disease and our mind is happy and healthy when it's free from dis-ease. It's not, it's the tension, the I can't be happy until I smoke that joint, eat that beer, I can't or drink that beer, eat that food. I can't be happy until I get that promotion at work. I can't be happy right now. So I need to do something in perpetual forward motion and distracting. And when you eliminate the expectations, the resentments, the need for postponing your joy, and you have that inner peace it's sustainable long-term and you, and you learn to be comfortable when you can feel those feelings. And then life comes and goes and it gives you highs and lows, but you're like relaxed throughout it all. It's, it's, it's not maybe as high as the high, but it's just amazingly sustainable. And you, you don't have these drop-offs where you're chasing the, the high all the time. And you can really only get there by being relaxed and present with your feelings and your experience and your mind. And then then the high, then you do utilize whatever agency, whether whatever you were using to feel that high, and it's amazing. But if you don't have it, you're okay too. And uh, you, but when you're chasing that high, there's always going to be a low, no matter what. And you're always going to have the disease of I can't be comfortable now because I need to be doing something different until you're doing it. Which and then it lasts for five seconds, and you get a hit of dopamine, and then you're right back to where you were. Only you don't have that the chemicals and the oxytocin, the serotonin, the dopamine endogenously because you've been getting it externally and you're in a deficit and it's, it's just a never ending cycle. Realistically, I believe. Well, because it actually lowers our distress tolerance, right? Like when we start leaning on external tools to medicate difficult feelings, it chips away at our chips away at our distress tolerance. We become less and less able to deal with certain feelings and deal with certain situations without leaning on these things. And as a result, the things that we struggle with feel so much bigger because we're, we've chipped away at our coping mechanisms. Like we don't, don't have them. That's a hundred percent, right? You lower your resiliency, both physiologically with your nervous system and your biochemistry and with the coping skills and tools that you have. You're, you're it's almost like when, um, if you take testosterone, which there's nothing wrong with it, but like, let's say you do, and then let's say you stop because it's not good for you for a time period, your body was getting testosterone exogenously. So your nuts shrink up and you don't have it anymore. And then you will get it back over time if you sleep well and eat saturated fat and all the stuff that they say, but there's going to be like six months where you were getting a bunch of it and now you have none of it. And there's a gap and it's like, it's hard to put on muscle. Your energy is low, your sleep sucks. And it's no judgment at on one way or the other, but it's just the math on it that in that in-between time, the body is real quick to go into taking the path of least resistance and homeostasis. And if you're giving it something externally, you're not endogenously or, or from a skill set perspective, creating those tools that help you feel the highs when life is good and weather the lows when life is rough, those resiliency tools. And that makes it particularly difficult when we set out to make changes, because there's going to be that initial period of time where shit just feels really raw. 
where things just feel really hard and and we feel like fuck like if this is how things are going to feel forever without my coping mechanisms without the things that i usually lean on if this is what life is like without those things then fuck this i'm going back but it, the reality is that it doesn't stay that hard right Yes, that's you hit the nail on the head, but it feels that way, especially if you're hit with a real hardship. Like when you lose a loved one unexpectedly, you're it feels like you're drowning and you can't come up for air and you go, I can't live underwater my whole life. I need air. Like it's it's almost intolerable, but it's very hard to recognize that feelings aren't facts and time doesn't heal all wounds, but it certainly turns the volume down and on the intensity. And when you can build up resilience, you will find a new norm and you will find joy again. But in that moment, if you're not practiced at understanding the temporary nature of feelings and how they ebb and flow and the comfort of sitting in the difficult ones, it just feels suffocating and like you can't withstand it long-term. And I think that's the crux of the issue right there. Mm. Well, clearly, Joe, you've got so much wisdom and experience with this. Can you share a little bit of what led you to the work that you're doing now? Sure. Um, and thank you for the compliment. Clearly you do too. It's awesome having conversations like this. Thank you, brother. Um, so let's see where to begin. I was a police officer for four years, right when I turned 21. And then I went into the fire department. It was amazing being a cop, but I just didn't like all the conflict and stuff. And I found my home on the fire department. And I did that for almost 12 years. And uh, about seven years ago now, um, I had an on the job injury and uh, had a spinal injury and a brain injury and I couldn't get cleared to go back to work. So right when I was getting promoted to fire captain at this thing I'd worked for for 15 years, I was actually retired and lost my career. And as all of that happened, my life kind of fell apart. I uh, My mom had dementia and just stopped even recognizing my kids or I. I lost another fr a friend, my best friend to an overdose and another friend in a car accident my grandmother died. All of these things started like I, I went from like life being amazing to like life just I was suffocating under every phone call felt like a death notification or a bad doctor's visit or a bill I couldn't pay. Both of my dogs ended up dying of cancer. And I love my dogs so much. Yeah. It was just like it. I didn't like I went from zero to 100 miles an hour on death and loss like it was really wild. And um, my family started suffering too. my uh, my wife started drinking very heavily. She's uh, since in recovery and is sober now, but at, during that time period, that was uh, her coping mechanism. We lost both of her grandparents. Every time somebody died, not only were my wife and I grieving, but we were having to talk to my two little kids and we had counselors involved teaching us, great grandma's dead, great grandpa's dead. You can't go visit grandma anymore. She doesn't recognize you. R Ruby is dying of cancer, our dog. It was like, my children went from being like these happy kids to like every week, PTSD sitting down at the table for us. To, and then we're trying to manage our grief while nurturing them through it. And my, I'm having surgery. It was just, it was like the two years of hell. And, um, I, I had a lot of grit and resilience because of the nature of my career, which I think is, it's amazing, but we're taught to push through everything. That's how we handle the death and the mayhem and the physical challenges of the job. And so I kept pushing, but physiologically, and emotionally, everybody has a breaking point. And like, I have big shoulders, but I went way beyond what I could carry. And so I thought I was in the game and fighting. I was miserable. I was sad. I was scared. But every night, I, I never really wanted to tap out. I, every day during that time period, I, I went to bed thinking, how, how can I survive this? How can I help? I'm a survivor. How can I help my family through this? 
And then one day, my my kids who were super happy and well adjusted started having because of all this started having all of these emotional struggles. They were getting kicked out of school. Everything was like my life was like amazing, and then it was just like fucked. It had fallen apart, and I felt so powerless and out of control. And a ninety percent of it wasn't anything I did, but I felt like such a failure. My kids didn't feel safe at home. They were failing at school. My wife was drinking. We were fighting. Everybody was dying, and it was like to go from like being this guy who helps people your whole life to like being entirely helpless and just sad. I'm a happy guy naturally. Like I'm, I think my temperament lies on the side of joy and I was just depressed and sad and I didn't know how to grieve or how to sit in it. And, uh, I, I never really had uh trigger warning. Is it safe to talk about suicide on here? That's I have yeah. her in your miss. And that's part of the story. Um, I never had suicidal ideations. Everybody's experience with this is very different. I went like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then I'm not okay. And my brain like broke. I had a day where my dad called me because my mom had run away from home and he he was caretaking for her and she was running down Central Avenue trying to get into people's cars and almost getting hit by a car. So I had to miss my physical therapy appointment, which my neck was hurting so bad and I had to go help my dad and my people were honking at us and my mom was fighting me. It was, it's awful to experience that by the way. And then, um, I finally got settled down with that. And then this principal called me and my daughter was getting kicked out of school for fighting the principal who she's like, never before all of our trauma. None of that was, I, I was so foreign to me. So I go pick her up and I'm helping her through her big emotions. And then at the time my wife was still struggling and she shares as well. I have permission from her to share like our, it's not dirty laundry, but people, are you putting your wife on blast? She and I do this together. And so, um, but she was drinking at the time and I don't remember what it was, but she was screaming at me over something. And all of a sudden I was just not okay. I, I like broke out. I have, I broke out into hives. I, I, I drove to a parking lot. I still, to this day, I don't even remember the drive. I don't even know how I got there, but I, I never made a decision. Like I'm going to end it. This is too much. I, all of a sudden, I'm going to walk through this trauma and you might see a response from me, but I'm safe doing this. And I don't recommend everybody doing it. It's part of my healing and my story of sharing it, but it's always a little bit hard for me when I dive back into that. So, um, I, I was in my truck in a parking lot and I had my finger on the trigger of my gun and my gun was in my mouth. And I was like crying because I, I did not feel like I wanted to exit. I felt like I had to, like somebody else was like outside of me forcing my hand. And I think I just hit a psychological tipping point. It was like when I was a firefighter, we would help people who had panic attacks, but I had never experienced anything like that. But I, I, I love meditating. I couldn't catch my breath. My breath was like hyperventilating. I felt like somebody was just punching me in the chest. I could feel my heartbeat. My ears were ringing. I was in hives and I just like the body keeps the score and my body and my brain just like had gone on way too long without addressing any of the, these feelings and these challenges I was experiencing. And all of a sudden I was about to kill myself and I had the gun in my mouth and I was just crying because I was thinking about, I didn't want to die and everything that was going on. And I was going to leave my kids this mess. Like I just felt awful, but I also felt powerless. Like I had to do it. I was entirely out of control and I was just trying to catch my breath and I was like wrestling with myself and I took a deep breath. I finally caught one. I love meditation. I've been meditating forever and I, I never knew it would save my life, but I'm pretty damn sure it did. I was able to take one huge breath like, and I was able to pull the gun out of my mouth and it was like the weirdest 
experience, like a trance had been broken. And I like threw the gun into my glove box. Like I could, I couldn't get away from it fast enough. Like all of a sudden it was like the opposite. Like I, I was unaware that I had a threat and now that was the threat. And it, I like flung myself out of my truck. Like I fell on the ground because I was, it was almost like, like somebody was attacking me and I had to get away from it. It was so weird. And then I just rolled over and I was sobbing and I was thrown up. I was just broken physically and mentally and emotionally. And I, I collected myself over a period of time and I called one of my fireman friends and I said, you're never going to believe this dude. I just almost killed myself. Will you take my gun? And he's a good dude. I drove to his house. We cried. I hugged him. I gave him my gun and I called the therapist who I'd seen a long time ago as part of like work stuff, but who I liked, but I, I never really thought I needed help. So I called and I got his voicemail. I said, Mike, I don't know if you remember me. This is Joe. I'm in crisis. I just almost killed myself. He called me back that evening after hours and I got in to see him and he and I just started unpacking emotions and grief and he taught me coping skills. And then I started like nerding out. I was like, fuck this. I, I just almost died. I've almost died a bunch at work. I can't believe I'm the, um, the person who almost killed me. That is a threat now that will never happen again. I had like this come to Jesus talk with my wife where I was like, I just almost killed myself. You're drinking every day. Our children are floundering we have to do something. And she checked herself into an outpatient facility here in the Valley and started unpacking her trauma, getting deep into sobriety and just like did so much hard work and got really healthy over the summer. And I mean, it's been years, but over that summer, that was deep work. And while she was at the outpatient facility for like eight hours a day, I bought every book I could on handling grief for children, anxiety for children. And I was sitting down with my kids and we were doing yoga and meditation and workbooks and doing every single thing that the counselor taught us how to do to regulate my emotions so I could teach them. And then I was going to my own therapy and I was reading, I was nerding out. I was reading books on post-traumatic growth and suicidal recovery. And I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to take all of my ambition and my drive that I had at work. And when I was in college and I'm going to apply it to getting healthy, I took these master classes on mindfulness and meditation for chronic pain. Like I just went, I went obsessive on getting healthy. And over time we started climbing our way out of our difficult circumstances and learning these tools to label. And I learned so much from these kids workbooks. It applies to adults too, but how to label our emotions properly and how to put a narrative to your story and different tools for processing different emotions to amplify the positives and build resilience and different tools to express and feel the negatives and how to cry and how to write expressive letters to my deceased loved ones. And, and I learned so much from my wife's outpatient. We learned marriage communication that we had never been taught and relationships with addiction and dependency. Sorry for using that word, but uh, different uh, relationships with uh, things that we utilize and how to to recognize whether it's healthy and what our tools are. And it was just like, I was learning from the kids. I was learning from my wife. I was learning from myself and inch by inch, I'm going to cry here. Cheers to joy. As a family, we started getting healthy. And it was like, all of a sudden my children went from like floundering to being like, so resilient that they were teaching their friends how to process emotions. And then I started, I started talking to other firemen about it. And the first couple of times I shared my story, cause I had been off of socializing for a couple of years. I had like lost touch with everybody cause I was just surviving. And I started hanging out with friends again and telling them what happened. And they were like, I'll never forget the first time another guy started crying back to me and tell me I almost killed myself too. And then another one and then another one. And I was like, Oh shit, there's a huge problem here. We got to talk about this. It's a, a little bit uncomfortable for me, but I'm going to. And then that led to 
more firefighters from other cities who I didn't even know. Hey, so-and-so told me to call you. And it was like, I started looking, the CDC has put out a call to action. We're more likely to die by suicide than any other line of duty death. And nobody's doing shit about it. We're not talking about it. And we train on every single thing from roof collapses to whatever, except for emotions, the number one killer. So then I started getting pissed. And that's when I started the podcast and Instagram. And I was like, I'm just going to put the word out there. This almost happened to me. I'm not an expert. Here's what helped me. This is a safe place to talk about it and share it. And guys, everybody fails and struggles in your house when you don't do this. And if you're a leader, whether it's at work or at home or whatever, like you deserve to be healthy and happy and people are suffering around you if you're not. And, but nobody is showing us how, and for some reason I know how, and the edge, I can still, I can drop F-bombs like the rest of them. I'm edgy as fuck, but also I can do this. And I feel somehow called to share the woo-woo world of meditation and counseling with the rugged dudes of the world. I'm, I'm one of those people who can integrate the two and I have street cred to back it up. And so I'm like, fuck it. I'm all in. I'm doing this. I And so it just snowballed. And then I started getting invited to speak. And now I'm creating training for my fire department. They're paying me to do it. And we're, everybody is on board. That's the craziest thing. They've Everybody's lost somebody that they noticed suicide. There's been so much um, struggles with dependency and family uh, struggles that now it's like everybody's aware there's a problem. It's, it's in our face. They can't deny it. And they're looking for a solution. And they asked me to give these talks and create this training. And it's like more, more, more. So now I'm creating videos and the guys are doing emotional work. It is amazing. The culture has shifted and some of the most badass motherfucking hard charge guys you could ever imagine are processing their feelings and they're digging it. And I feel so grateful to be even be a slight part of that, uh, that this movement right now. And so I know I just talked a lot. It's a long story. I'm sorry, but that, that that's pretty much it, man. Thank you. I don't even know where to start with expressing my gratitude for everything that you just shared and my admiration for what you've done. There aren't words for it, man. They're, they're, they're just, are not words for it. It means um, a lot to me. Thank you. Something I've never shared publicly on, on this podcast um, is that I had a suicide attempt when I was in my early 20s. And before I was 30, Two of the men who I was close friends with at school and as teenagers, by the time I was 30, I'd already had two friends, two, two men die from suicide. And it's just the fact that in a dangerous job, like what you do and first responders and everything like that, still the most dangerous thing is suicide. Thank you for everything that you do. Well, likewise, and I'm so sorry you experienced that. And thank you. I'm honored that you would choose me to share that with. I, I'm 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 so sorry you went through it, but I'm I'm honored that we're sharing this space together. Dude, um, it truly is an honor, honor and a privilege to be here and having this conversation right now. The man who raised me was raised by a man who was born around the end of the 1800s society has has like you know in in some ways and with men and women and everything like this i know we're having a conversation about men and everything like that and women have very specific challenges in this area as well with with how slow some things are in terms of society and and or the the challenges that we face in some ways we're moving very quickly, but in other ways we're moving really, really slowly. 
and the it always strikes me that the men who raised us were like one or two generations away from a, a time that just feels like a whole other 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 universe like i can't even articulate it properly it's this this thing that i feel like we're playing catch up with like trying to catch up on okay fuck um how do we process emotion like how do we how do we deal with with all this cuz i maybe it's my own bias working in the field that i work in but i feel like the number of people who are raised and given these skill sets that's not the norm it's it's more common for us to miss out on a whole bunch of skill sets that we really need in terms of emotional regulation and mental health and everything like that yeah but you and i are changing that because that's fucking bullshit <laughs> yeah yeah it and that's why bullshit. we're doing that's why we're pouring our heart out here and doing what we're doing and yeah. schools are so caught up in math and standardized testing and everything else and they're not teaching these skills or allowing space for these types of conversations for men, women, children, or adults. And, uh, I'm dead set on fucking dismantling that, uh, you're right. In a lot of ways we're progressive and it's amazing, but we're behind the curve on that. And people like us are doing what we're doing because of that. And I'm so proud of you for doing that and for taking that viewpoint and for doing the work that you do. Oh man, you're going to make me teary. I really, I mean it. I don't give bullshit compliments. I have no false flattery. I only say it if I mean it. Man, I think you just articulated that much better than I did. You said behind the curve with some yeah, things. Yeah, we're behind like, the curve, yeah. Yeah. No, like, you articulated it much better. When you play this back, you'll see that you you have a beautiful way of saying things. Trust me, I'm I'm feeling a little bit like, oh man, he's I, I, I'm I uncomfortable sharing right now because you have such a good way of articulating all well, of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a really big compliment. But, you know, let's like full transparency. Ever since I moved to the UK, uh, my vocabulary and the way that I phrase things has 100% changed. I would love to touch on something else that you mentioned in your Instagram content that you know, it's it's a serious thing, but as well, we can have a bit of a giggle about it too. And it's like five signs of trauma that you think are just part of your personality. Yeah. Wow. Like this is a whole thing. Do you want to do the list? Or first of all, can you clarify for us what this is actually about? So when we say like, okay, here are five things that you do that you think are just kind of part of your personality or part of who you are, but really they're signs of past trauma. Yes. And let's see, you put me on the spot. Let's see if I can remember them because I wrote this them is down an, just in case. This is great because what happened is normally I plan my content and I have things that I want to talk about. And yesterday that popped up on my feed while I was doing some of my planning. And I, I instantly was like, oh my gosh, this needs to be talked about. This is definitely me. This is definitely my wife, former versions of us. This is so many of my friends. A lot of these issues, I'm happy to say that I don't exhibit now, but only because I had decades of unawareness and I did, and I've worked through them now and I understand, and I still have the impulse to do them. I just kind of have the uh, awareness and the skill set now. And so it's a hard conversation to have because I did not want to look like I was putting anybody on blast and pointing it out. But also, it's so important to be aware of not only how we behave, but the root cause of why and where we might not have been nurtured growing up and where 
I like the saying that it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah. And so it's just because nobody else is going to do it, but it's not your fault that nobody taught you these skills or nurtured you growing up. It's not, it's bullshit. It's not your fault, but also only you can be aware of and nurture these sides of you to feel healthy and happy and not exhibit these behaviors anymore. And so many of these behaviors we do unconsciously and they are a sign of little T trauma, like small trauma and big trauma. And a lot of it's childhood, but it could be relational abuse of relationships or just death and mayhem like I experienced. And you, once you see it put in that bullet point format, you're like, I, I bet I had a feeling it was going to hit with a lot of people because it hit with me and I saw it in myself so much and I see it in the world around me. And so it was kind of one of those ones I was like, I hope I don't take shit and feel like I'm a, offending people and putting them on blast. But I think we have to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you did really well in how you presented it too. I've, I, I've never felt called out or anything by any of your content. Like you do it, you draw attention to these things in such a compassionate way that I, I, I uh, appreciate the awareness around, you know, not wanting to feel, not wanting to make people feel like they're being called out or that it's too heavy or anything like that. But I, the way that you draw attention to these things, I think, is is amazing. So, I wrote them. I wrote them down just because I didn't want to put you on the spot to remember all of them, like in a list. Usually, so. the stuff I talk about, I can rattle off. This one was kind of new to me last night, and it was more like oh, hey, I kind of want to have this dialogue and learn on this stuff together with everybody. But was thanking was uh, was thanking people the, the first one? The, the first one, thanking too much when someone is kind to you. Why do we do that? This is one of the ones that I had to overcome and I yeah. still have the impulse to do it. And it somehow, this is a tough one. Um, we don't feel valid receiving help or nice gestures from people because it wasn't instilled in us necessarily growing up that we were worthy of love and kindness. And so maybe from a, a totally different perspective, the nurturing our parents should have given us. So then when anybody, when your friend helps you move or he, uh, you know, offers to take your kids to school for you or whatever, it's totally appropriate to feel gratitude and to express gratitude but there's a huge difference between that and like overthinking, like I'm not worthy. It's a subconscious. I'm not worthy of receiving this gift or I'm not comfortable receiving this gift. Just like when you pay somebody a compliment and sometimes they get real uncomfortable and it's like, oh man, I don't judge you for being uncomfortable, but somebody should have told you you're awesome and how to receive a compliment. You are worthy of having kind words said. The way we exchanged those compliments was beautiful. Uh, that's not, wasn't the way I always did. I, I also got uncomfortable de de a decade ago regarding how to just say like, oh, thank you, man. I hear that. And that's amazing. And that made me feel good. Like you, you, instead it's like you either shy away from it or you overthink it's a people pleasing type of deal where it's like you peel back the layer and it's like, thank you is totally okay. But man, thanking somebody a hundred times over or, or, and Another one, it's the flip side of the same coin, which is down the road. You'll get to it in a moment, I'm sure, is over-apologizing too. Either one is 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 a feeling of like, I'm less than and you're more than and I'm getting this, but I don't deserve it. And a lot of that is rooted in whether it was a, a marriage later on in life or your parental relationships, not being taught how to express gratitude, but also that you're worthy of being loved. You're a human being. You're worthy of being treated kindly and you're worthy of treating other people kindly and we should surround ourselves with people where those are normal exchanges and please and thank you are great, but not begging or overthinking or overthinking when those things happen. 
apologizing all the time. Number two, apologizing all the time for no reason. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. 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 I, I experienced this one probably more than anyone on the list. I'll never forget at a fire station when I was trying to become a captain, I was becoming a leader. And one of my mentors told me, hey, man, that's like the fifth time you apologize to me for something. You just apologize to me when I bumped into you in the hallway. Are you aware that you're apologizing for stuff that you didn't even do? And it really radiates like a lack of confidence. And I think he was not into the emotions like I was. He didn't say it. It, there's a lack of nurturing from your childhood. He was looking like, hey, man, you're going to lead men into burning buildings. You better. Apologies are good. Accountability is great. Apologizing for shit that you didn't do and apologizing five times is real weak is what he was saying to me. But so that that's almost right. But when I saw that, I was like, I will apologize to the waiter if I have to send food back, even if it's like if they messed it up and it's, and I'm like, so kind, there's nothing wrong with saying, Hey, I don't, this is not warm enough. Get do I'm thank you. And do you mind sending it back? But like, I was raised in a very much, um, holding boundaries was wrong. People who spoke their mind, no matter what were rude. And it was like, subjugate your needs at all costs. And that was fucking damaging to me growing up. And then I kind of overcame some of it. And I learned how to hold boundaries and stuff, but I sure started fucking apologizing like crazy when I did. And until that guy pointed that out, I wasn't even aware of it. And then I started recognizing how much I did it. And now it's like, I see it. I feel so bad. I feel like some people like me almost apologize for even existing. Like me in the hallway, I bumped in, he bumped into me and I said, sorry, like, what kind of shit is that, dude? You don't need to be sorry for somebody else bumping into you. You don't need to apologize for having a need. You don't need to apologize for hurting or venting or just being you or sending your, so, and a pendulum can go too far. Of course. I love a good apology, making amends and how can I make it right? And taking accountability is great. But like, there's a big difference between that and over apologizing. Like if somebody says it's okay, it's all good. And I forgive you. You don't need to keep saying, I'm sorry. There's some sort of lack of worth or validation or insecurity or my, my deserving of a need or my deserving of to be forgiven is, is not as big as the other person who I'm talking to. And that's just not true. We're all human beings equally worthy of grace and respect and love and all of that. But most of us were conditioned to the opposite. So it manifests in these subconscious behaviors. Hmm. Number three, can't remember your childhood. Okay, so I, I like when we're talking about childhood trauma, we never compare trauma, right? Like that's a big rule. Like yeah. your trauma isn't bigger than mine and vice versa. Although objectively, sometimes people's experiences were much worse than others. Uh, but it just doesn't. The worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And it's the hardest thing. Exactly. But like, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's so important. There's nuance to what we're saying here. But that being said, I never really got like abused in my childhood or anything like that. What I never got was nurturing either, though, never being told by dad, I'm proud of you. or I love you. I see. You, you know what I mean? And then I got I never. So there was a dip. But whereas like my wife, she had a very, very difficult childhood. Her mom and her dad were married and divorced. Her mom was married and divorced 12 different times to nine different men. She was abandoned by them and then taken to other States. And there was, there was, again, this is things that she shares openly, but there was mayhem and she is still unpacking and coming up with new memories and finds it frustrating that she can't remember it. And it, when she went to that outpatient facility that I referred you to, she felt this flood of validation and relief when she was in this room full of all these other people who also had memories that they couldn't remember 
their childhood was blocked out. And, and then the therapist was there telling them that this is absolutely normal when you've experienced trauma. And it was like, she just thought like, I'm dumb and I have a bad memory or something. And it wasn't like she put two and two together when she started doing the work that was like, no, I was traumatized and the brain will protect me by blocking these memories. And sometimes you get them back. Sometimes you don't, but like, I think that one is way more just to let somebody know if you're experiencing that there's no judgment, there's nothing wrong with your, your, your brain and your body was doing what it's designed to do to protect you from something that you never deserved experiencing and you shouldn't have gone through. But also just to be aware, like you might have trauma and it might be worth tapping into healing work because of that. Mm. Number four, can't accept compliments. We touched on this one before, but man, it's real. So in the fire department, this is part of what I teach. Part of building resilience, one of the ingredients is connection and positive interactions with other people. And we're always like, we're so quick to brush it off. Even if you, I, I teach the guys how to both give and receive compliments, because if you give false flattery and bullshit, people can smell it from a mile away and nobody wants to be brown nosed. And that's not what I'm talking about. But also you and I have both lost dear friends. And so I don't leave unsaid words on the table. It's important to say how you're feeling when you have a positive thing to say to somebody. And it's equally important to know how to be open to receiving that because that's a beautiful part of the human experience. And so we have this thing on the job where we say, if you see something, say something. And what that means is even if you're the newest probationary guy, if a chief is doing something dangerous, you're allowed to say something and break the chain of command and tell your boss, stop, because you're going to get somebody hurt or killed. So I flip the script on that. And I say, if you see a guy who is working really hard to be a good dad, or he's going to therapy, or he's studying for that promotional exam, say something, say, hey, I see what you're doing, bro. Good job. You're always cleaning the truck or like, uh, you know, you're taking care of yourself. I see you getting in the gym. That's fucking awesome, dude. Great job. I think for do anybody in the world, but dads to kids and dudes to dudes, like, hey, man, I see you. And that's awesome. Good job is all it takes. It can be as simple as that because it's the authenticity and the sentiment that matters, not so much the words. And then on the flip side to receive that, take a breath and know that you're worthy of receiving that compliment and just say, thanks, man. I see you too. That makes me feel good. And you know what? A lot of guys, you start doing that, like the way I'm welling up right now, they'll be like, oh, you pussy. You start doing that and you'll see them start to well up too, because most of us didn't get that growing up. And it's a beautiful exchange. It's And, it, and if you really care about saving the lives of others or your own and preventing suicide and things, those types of exchanges are little deposits in the resiliency bank account that add up over time to have a huge margin in your budget. And like, and also, it's just part of the beautiful thing in life. It's once you get used to it, sharing and exchanging love and kindness is fucking awesome. Man, I I know this is a huge one for me. Like it was my my birthday in January and my wife is encouraging me to be like, to be accepting compliments, to be accepting when people want to do something nice for me and like bring it back to what I said about my birthday. My wife was like, we're having people over for your birthday they will probably bring you a present. There will be a cake. People will say happy birthday. And it's your job to embrace that and accept it. And I'm like, okay, Ooh, I'll do my <laughs> That's how you do it though, right? It's like a workout. One, you step foot in the gym, do one rep, one step, start slow. 
embrace the the difficulty. Good job. I'm going to give you, an, I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. But <laughs> good job. Good job on her by suggesting that. And good job on you for embracing it and leaning into that challenge. Well, thank you, man. I just, what you said about how powerful these things are, like, obviously, you, you know, and to anyone listening knows that I work in the eating disorder kind of field, like I'm a big eating disorder awareness advocate, and I've been doing my best for years to make this more of a conversation around men in particular. And in especially in the first couple of years that I was doing this, first few years that I was doing this, it was like throwing energy and time and content and work just into this bottomless pit that just nothing would ever come back. And maybe once every six months out of nowhere, I would get like an Instagram message from like one guy who's never, who'd never liked any of my posts, never commented on anything, never given any indicator that they're listening or watching. And they would send me one message and just be like, I had to reach out and say, thank you so much for what you're doing. And sometimes that would be it, but that, that would keep me going for another six months. Swear to fucking God. Like I screenshot every single one of those. And whenever I'm feeling burnt out, I have a file on my phone that I look at that are fuel my passion and give me the drive to continue. I resonate with what you just said so much. Hell yeah, man. The power of just seeing someone doing something good and reaching out and saying, Hey, I see you. I see what you're doing there. Nice work. Like I see that. Especially a dude to a dude. I see you, bro. Oh, fuck. That, that's but huge. It's massive. Absolutely massive. And I think that we can adjust our mindset a little bit to make this more uh, comfortable. And I think that we definitely, and the real says it, you think you're humble. And and the reality is, is I think some of the resistance comes from, our, we do value humility and it is so important to be humble and nobody likes an arrogant dick. And so, right, it's true. But you can, you can, we can reframe this a little bit. This is what I tell my kids. And you have to listen to the whole thing because you're going to think I'm arrogant until I get to the end of this. But the reason I can receive a compliment, and this took years of work to get to this place, is because I know I'm fucking awesome and I deserve it. But I don't think, here's why I'm still humble. Because even my son will be like, oh, and you're awesome at being humble too. And I'm like, let me finish, bro. First of all, <laughs> I feel lucky to be this awesome. How much of it I did for myself, I don't really know. It's a lot of stuff, but the important pivotal part is I don't feel any more awesome than any other person. I think you're fucking awesome too. And I think every human being is fucking amazing. Even if they're not presenting that way today, they have unique gifts and abilities and untapped potential. And even on their worst day, every human being is worthy of feeling awesome. You might be doing a behavior that's harming yourself or somebody else. And of course, you need to course correct. But that doesn't take away from your inherent value as a human being. I'm fucking awesome. And I deserve that compliment. But you're fucking awesome. And you deserve that compliment, too. And it's teamwork. There's plenty of room at this awesome table. So I'm not awesome in relation to anybody else. That would be arrogance. I'm not trying to win. I just want everybody to feel good. And there's nothing arrogant about that. We is plenty of, there's, there's a, a fine, it's an infinite amount of good vibes to throw around. Okay. So oh, everybody dude. has a seat at the table. That is like abundance mindset with good yeah. vibes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing. 
You know, one more thing before I mention the, mention the final of this list of five, what you're talking about, that feeling, that self-value type thing. The thing that opened the door to that for me at first was having a sense of humor about it. I found it really difficult to feel good about myself. And, and this is going to sound fucked up, but like until I saw this TV show called Archer, and it's, I love that show. It's one of the best shows. <laughs> right? For I people, love it so much. For people who aren't listening, it's like a funny piss take of like a, a James Bond type thing where imagine, yeah, it, it's like a humorous version of that where the, the primary character is just insanely overly confident for no real good reason um and it and he just he will say stuff like oh, i'm sorry i can't hear you over the sound of my incredible awesomeness like you know like that and so i found that just to be so funny that i know that that, that in that example like he kind of he's a very arrogant guy like in that that kind of context but being able to see the humor in that somehow provided me with a back door into kind of jokingly talking about myself that way amongst friends. Me too. That's the value of that show. He's the most arrogant narcissist ever, but he's hilarious. And also you can gleam wisdom from that because it's obviously not healthy to do it the way he does, but that he's got a real healthy self-esteem and he's fucking hilarious. And sometimes I'll say that when people like to my kids, I'll say stuff like, sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of my own awesomeness or stuff like things like that in a funny way. It, yeah. it kind of, but it's like, don't bring me down. I'm not going to let you bring me down because I have that much value in myself, you know, but that that type of comedy, I believe, opens the doorway to these very real mindsets and issues, too. Oh, so I, and it's interesting that you say that we have a lot of parallels. I love that. Oh, show, by the way. I think it's one of the funniest shows on, on TV. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. And, you know, it was a bit of a personal development uh an unexpected personal development avenue for me. Nothing says growth and development can't be fun as hell and hilarious. I think uh, that's an important part of it too. 100%. All right. Number five on this list, never ask, like when someone never asks for help and it's, it's really hard to receive help. Okay. I'm putting up my hand here. I kind of threw myself under the bus with confessions about this one a few moments ago. Yeah, here we are never asking for help uh, and finding it really hard to accept help. That's a very hard one for many of us. I, I too put my hand up. Um, so I was always a helper in my career field, but also I, I always kind of had my shit together. Like I really did a lot of budgeting. So I had a lot of friends come to me for budget help and I was always into diet and exercise. So I had friends asking me for help in that regard. I've always I, I've, I was kind of known as a guy that people could go to for help until my life fell apart. And then I was forced to reach out for help or die or my family would fail. So like a lot of us, we learn these lessons the hard way and we're dragged into it. Right. But like I started getting lots of little help and boy, the firemen I'll start crying talking about, they stepped up to the plate. Like my wife wanted, when she started getting healthy, she wanted to start riding her bike to work. That was part of her outdoor and her exercise. And I had just retired from the fire department. So my income was cut in half. So we couldn't afford a bike at the time. And I had gone from having all of this financial margin 
to being broke for the first time in my life. And I reached out to one of my friends, Don, he was before he was a firefighter, he was a professional cyclist. And he was known for like, he'll always tell you like, don't go to Target and Walmart and get a bike. Let me find a bike on Craigslist that's really good, but beat up. And he could like fix bikes up for people for like a few hundred dollars. He'll get you like this because he's like a genius at bikes. He's worked at bike shops his whole life. He's a professional racer. And so I called Don. I said, dude, my wife really wants a bike. She's getting healthy. I can't afford one. He's like, I'm on it. And so he he texts me a couple of weeks later and I'm definitely going to cry telling this story, by the way, which is healthy. I don't care. Okay. Um, and he says, dude, I, I found Leslie a bike and I uh, found it on Craigslist. I said, how much was it? He said, dude, it was literally just like 200 bucks. Don't even worry about it. It's a gift to you or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh. So he said, uh, it's down at the bike shop. So I told Leslie, hey, the guy's got you a bike. And he found you a carrier because my kids were little still and she wanted to take them to school. And uh, he said, it's out at the bike shop. He, he's a fireman. He doesn't need the money, but he works part-time at a bike shop just because it's like his culture. It's his life. He says down at the bike shop. Um, and so she's like, okay, I'm going to you know go get it or whatever. So I text him, I coordinate it. She drove down to the bike shop expecting to get this like junker bike that he had fixed up that was going to be functional off Craigslist. She calls me crying. He, she said, Don is not at the bike shop, but there's this, $2,000 specialized bike that looks like a Ferrari. It's like orange with these black rims and this top of the line kid carrier, $600 trailer with helmets in the back. And a bunch of the firemen had pulled their resources. And it just was, an, I was like at my lowest. And it was a note that said, we love you. This is our gift to you, you know, from the firemen. And it was like, it's like $2,500 worth of things without saying anything. I don't still don't even know which all guys contributed to it but it, it's like so beautiful and that was those guys wanted to help me i helped him through a divorce I, i've invested my time and my energy into my friends and when i needed it they poured their love out to me from moving the refrigerator while my neck was out to watching my kids while i was going to die i mean i needed help and uh and i needed help from a therapist and i started realizing that all of these people they were telling me like how did you feel when you were helping me? They started telling me all the times I helped them. And I told them it felt good, you know? And they were like, that's, we feel good doing this. We want to help you. And it was just like, this is a missing component in men's health is, or women too, anybody. But I just stay in my lane because I'm a dude and a fireman. We, it's, it's, you don't help out of obligation or out of resentment. Don't do it if you don't want to. But if you want to help, and if your friends want to help you out, let them, you're, you're depriving them of a gift by not taking that help. And so that experience really opened my eyes up to that. I wrote about it in my book. It's still one, I, 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 it's one of the most beautiful memories I've ever had. And, and those guys, not only were they like happy to do it, but they reminded me of all the ways that I had forgotten about throughout the years that I had helped them. And I felt great about helping them. And they were like, why would you deprive us of the chance to do that? For you, it's not an either or, or I'm not deserving or you're not. It's synergy. It's beautiful love and connection. And that's part of the, the human experience. Joe, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Like, dude. Thank you too. And you're welcome. All right. So I could have honestly kept talking to Joe like forever, but you know, I'm only going to hold your attention for so long. So I decided to wrap it up there. If you want to talk to me more, if you want to reach out to Joe or myself, follow the links in the episode description. My name is Marcus Kane. This was Strong Not Starving. See you next week.